but moments that matter. Moments that matter. Moments that matter. Welcome to this latest edition of the Moments That Matter podcast series. I'm your host, Darren Clear, and today I'm going to be talking to Alex Taylor. And Alex has worked for the last few years in the community services sector. And hopefully through our discussion today, you'll get to learn a little bit more about the challenges of that sector, but also take something on board from Alex about the importance of self-awareness in terms of avoiding burnout in a challenging role, the intersection between empathy and compassion when dealing with people going through difficult times, as well as giving an understanding of the importance of not judging people and understanding that people have a lot more going on behind the scenes than what you may be aware of in a professional setting. So with that said, let's now go to my conversation with Alex Taylor. So Alex, let's begin. I'll begin by asking you to talk me through your yep. career to date. So uh, I know you're writing resumes at the moment, but talk me through some of the different things that you've done across your career. Sure. So for about the past 10 years, I've been involved in community services. So I've worked in public health, in communications. Um, I've worked in the homelessness sector in New South Wales. Um, and then most recently, I was working in the employment side of helping asylum seekers find work in Sydney once they'd arrived and were living in the local community. So give me an understanding of, in terms of homelessness, the, the link between homelessness and mental health because I'm not sure that a lot of people sort of understand just how closely those two things can be linked. I would say that they were, it was a, a complete correlation, absolutely. In my view, homelessness and mental health go hand in hand. And there's lots of evidence for house, for what's called housing first. So a model where you provide someone with just a safe roof over their head and then you can wrap around mental health services and people can bounce back. But the challenge is that it's really difficult to treat mental health while someone is on the street. So what's the best way, I mean, in your experience, what was the best way to sort of mm. assist people in, in those situations? I mean, if we want a real solution, it's an expensive one and it is putting people in housing. Um, and there's a lot of really good evidence from places like Finland, for example, who've completely transformed homelessness and the way that they did that was to put people into some kind of safe accommodation and then see what their needs are but but it's 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 really challenging to try and address people's needs while they're on the streets or while they're in temporary accommodation it's just too challenging and there's too much instability in in people's lives when they're when they don't have a safe home to be able to tackle you know mental health or alcohol and other drugs or whatever the challenges are and then anecdotally I've heard people who work in homelessness tell me that if people didn't have a mental health condition before they became homeless then they certainly do by the time they're homeless because you know the streets are an unsafe place it's really common to have violence occur that members of the public are violent towards the people who are homeless it's really common for women who are homeless to face sexual violence on the streets as well. So you can imagine that in that context, trying to tackle people's mental health is just not going to be very effective. In terms of your own sort of dealings with the mental health, I mean, how, how did you deal with, because it, it's often difficult uh, dealing with people who do sort of have mental health issues, because generally, you know, they, they don't understand that they're 
they may or may the, the mental health issues that they may have. So how did you sort of approach dealing with people in that situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think focusing on behaviours is always the way to go because the other thing is you might not know someone's mental health history. You might not have a complete picture of that. When I was working with asylum seekers, the challenge was that we were working with people who didn't have a lot of access to health services often. And, you know, at the place that I worked, we actually had a health clinic to to specifically support people who didn't have Medicare. And the other challenge with that group of people that I was working with was that even if they had mental health or other health conditions, they weren't eligible for any federal income support. So weren't, you know, couldn't access the disability support pension or anything like that, for instance. So it was really challenging because it was hugely likely that people had mental health issues. It was just, well, how can we even begin to support that? And also they needed a job because they couldn't access that that support that you and I could access if we were unable to work due to due to illness so and what skills do you think you brought to the table that helped you to to sort of cut through i guess and and deal with those people in that role i think uh, a willingness to really just listen to what people are saying and to believe them and if people were telling me that they urgently needed a job then then we were noticing that urgency and so I think that that job actually gave me the ability to tell what was an urgent matter versus um, something that wasn't was less urgent so my my risk assessment skills became very strong and then just generally just being gentle with people which I think gentle being gentle and kind with people in general is a good skill and then I think finally the skill that I have learned would be around self-care around burnout because the burnout rate in our in community services generally is extremely high and um we know it's a risk but it's just such an ever-present one that challenging to to really prioritize it um but i think having that same that same care for others that we then need to show to ourselves in order to keep doing the work. I think that forms the basis of resilience as well. Yeah, and I think that's the key. I mean, I've worked in the funeral industry for a number of years. So one of the the things is you've Mm. got to be close to people, but you can't be too close to them where you're sort of taking on that that extra burden. And it is a fine line, isn't it, to walk? It is. I heard someone recently describe it, and I can't remember who it was, describe it as compassion but not empathy. And I think it's a really, really good distinction because I think if you're using empathy all the time to relate to people, then that's where you get your burnout and your fatigue. Whereas, I mean, we can all, we can all have compassion without, I, I think, without sort of being deeply, deeply affected by it to the point where you can't carry on in that work anymore. Whereas I think empathy takes it out of you a lot more and also might not be that useful in being a good practitioner i don't know i think if you have if you have compassion and you're good at your job i think that's probably completely sufficient to work in community services well and talk to me about a, a specific case that you might have had so you, you spoke at the outset sort of about um, the importance of getting people into a home situation and I'm guessing the evidence shows that when people have a more stable environment around them then that their mental health issues will di- will diminish somewhat and you, and you give them a fighting chance to sort of deal with that. Give me some example, yeah. an example of a, a time when you've sort of taken someone from a low point and, and seen them into a, 
into a home situation and, and that's led to a positive result for them. Yeah, so look, there were countless examples of times where employment in particular changed people's lives, including uh, people who people seeking asylum who were homeless. It's really hard to paint a picture of how limited the supports were for people seeking asylum. You know, I, I had worked in homelessness and I had thought that I had seen what it was like to have no supports available to you but then it's even worse for people who um, aren't citizens um, because a lot of services are on the basis of your visa or your citizenship so but going back to your question yes they looked there, there were countless times where someone was in a precarious situation and just by sitting with them listening to them put, going into bat for them around employment and then um, having some follow-up around health after they'd gotten a job, that people were able to get a tenancy um, and have the, have the money for a bond and have have the first bits of a stable life in Sydney start to take shape. Well, how do you stay positive? I mean, how do you, because you, you're dealing with people who are in a bit of a bleak situation. I mean, do you find that it's better mm. to just cut through and say, be honest and say, this, this is a difficult situation, our options are limited, uh, or do you try and always have a positive and op- optimistic spin on, on what, you, what you're telling them? I try and be realistic and honest with people because I think a lot of, a lot of people know the situation already and they just want someone to tell them, like, I'm going to help with the situation. Especially because even though there's so few supports available, there's still a lot of bureaucracy sometimes. I would always just be really honest with people about you know we're going to process the reason is because I think it will lead to a good outcome I know it's an annoying process just let's keep working together on that so I would be really frank with people because as well if you if you've come I mean I worked with people from 90 different countries if you have come from any number of any one of those countries then the system can be really different to what you're used to and you need someone to tell it to you straight and actually part of my job was delivering a series of workshops so organizing the delivery of a series of workshops on on work culture in Sydney, in New South Wales, Australia, because our workplace culture is so different and specific. And I can, my favourite example is one of my, one of um, my clients who was an engineer and very skilled um, and experienced and presented really well and was, was struggling. And um, I, I lined up a job interview for him and he went along and it sounded good. Uh, you know, he, he was positive. And then I got a call from the employer that he'd arrived an hour early and brought his wife and I called him and I, yeah. And I, and I was saying, what's going on? And he said, Oh, look where I'm from. It's a sign of respect that you, that you show up really early and that you, you know, your work family meets your family family. <laughs> um, and so he missed out on this opportunity because of something like that. But, but if I was sort of pussyfooting around telling him how, you know, how things work or don't work in Australia, then, there's just more of those opportunities that fall by the wayside because of preventable things like telling him, and you know, and I should have, I should have told him be 15 minutes early and go alone, but I didn't know. Yeah. So there's lots of, lots of the cultural barriers that are really subtle that mean that if people aren't being really clear, that people just get more and more confused and do things like that. And then, you know, feel frustrated. But Australia has, or, or I guess Sydney has a, has a specific work culture that I don't think we realise that we have. You know, we think that we're really informal, but then if someone wears, you know, 
joggers to a job interview. We're certainly not that informal, you know. And yeah. so it's it's quite hard to convey the, all the nuance to people who've, you know, had 90 different sets of experience at least. I mean, 90 cultures. Like, or if their if their boss tells them to call them by the first name. Yes, and then if they say we're a casual workplace here, but then if you're late and you don't call in, or if you're sick and you don't call in again, sorry, it's not that casual. <laughs> Well, what have you picked up anything from the different cultures that you've dealt with that you, you feel like has sort of changed your own outlook on life or changed the way that you behave in certain situations? I always just assume that people um, have so much more going on behind the scenes than what we're seeing. So I think it's made me less judgmental because I've seen how hard people have been trying to build a life. And then when I think about it, I get to see that side of them. But, you know, people that they meet on the street might just think that they haven't got much going on, whereas I can see how much richness there already is, but then also how much how much work people are doing behind the scenes to be well and to be productive and to be happy and building a life. And I think that's true in homelessness and I think that's true in working with people seeking asylum and with people health in general, just that we get to see a tiny snippet. And again, I think I've learned to never write anyone off. Like if you were someone who was the, the employer who, I'm just thinking of my engineer who kind of, who might have thought that, that was a bit ridiculous if you didn't know the context and you didn't know what was going on with that. I mean, that guy got a job and he's now like a senior senior engineer in um in a so he was Venezuelan and he got a job in a Spanish English company in Sydney and now he's flying. He's hugely successful. So you could have missed out on that great talent because it didn't look the way you expected it to look or there was just kind of something funny going on that you didn't really know what it was. What do you yeah. think are some of the common misconceptions that people have about asylum seekers and, and people? Because, I mean, one of the big things for me is I, I get my back gets... You'll never not get my back up more quickly than if you say asylum seekers don't want to learn English and don't try and speak the English language because I know for a fact that's just completely false. And I've had people in tears to me just worried about how bad their English simply is and they speak quite fine. I mean, what are some of the things in addition to maybe that that, that you think people have misconceptions about uh, when we're talking about asylum seekers and people uh, trying to migrate here? Yeah, look, I think um, I think you picked a great example. And, you know, for context, like there's a huge difference um, legally speaking in terms of what their entitlements are between asylum seekers and refugees. Asylum seekers in Australia can't even access free English to pro, like programs. There's not there's not the adult migrant English program that's available for refugees. So asylum seekers don't have a place to go to to knock on the door to ask to learn to speak English. And then because of because of cuts to income support, they broadly speaking don't have any any access to money as well. So what it means is that they, they need to find work straight away to survive. And then navigating the job market is tough for anyone. And you and I both know that as people who work with job seekers. But it's really tough to do it when you don't have any um, backup and you don't have, maybe you don't have the level of English skills that you want to develop. But, a, you know, a great way to develop English is through immersion or, or any language through immersion. So a lot of people will pick up really good English on the job. And um, I can think of an example of a client of mine who was actually, he was a great example of a, a client who was an asylum seeker who had mental health. 
he fell out of a job that I placed him in once due to a mental health crisis on the job um, and it was a pretty bad one. He broke down at work and it happened on, it was really challenging, it happened on the weekend and I I was working Monday through Friday so I only found out on Monday and I was finding out that he'd, you know, was had been in a really dark place on the Saturday and then I just had to call and make sure that he was he was still with us on the Monday. Mm. Um, but unfortunately he lost that job But I, he I, and he took some time around mental health to get a little bit more settled and then he wanted to be put forward for another job and he wanted me to help him and I did. And um, I ran into him a couple of years later and he was still in that job and his English was phenomenal and he, he was saying that that the guys on the job site find it fun to teach him. So, you know, he's a he's a labourer and they're they're working on on big jobs, you know, throughout for weeks and months. And the guys on site just have taken it upon themselves to just just help him out with his English. And I mean it keeps them you know, occupied during the day, it's no problem. And his English now is phenomenal. And, you know, at at any point we could have you know, someone could have written him off over his mental health, his English. But he was he'd sustained a, a construction job for a couple of years in Sydney and he was doing really well and getting on really well with his colleagues so what do you find I mean how do you build someone back up after something like that I mean do you have any sort of particular techniques or something you've found that works quite well to sort of build someone's um, confidence back yeah up yeah I think I think time will do a little bit of it and it's challenging in situations that are time sensitive and then beyond that, I think I think the proof is in the pudding. Like p- people want to do things, and asylum seekers definitely want to do things. And I think a huge part of the problem is that you know is the lack of a chance to do a thing. And actually, one of my um, one of my Iranian clients um, who were <laughs> who ended up kind of being one of my favourite clients because he was he was just this really stubborn gentleman, an older older gentleman who found me very frustrating and I was really trying to help him in it. and I think he knew it but but he, I like he just he'd had a sh- really tough run right and he just just wanted a job and he didn't understand why he kept having to deal with this girl who was telling him all about the labor market in Sydney and anyway I put him forward to a job interview and he he looked really frustrated and he said to me I don't understand why I have to do the job interview I I can do the job if they give me the job they will see that I can do the job like they should just give me the job (laughs) and um and I mean he's not wrong right because it was a cleaning role and he's like I can clean I'll show you but they didn't want that they wanted someone who could answer questions about cleaning chemicals and you know what would you do if so Mm. So, uh, but then he he did get the job um after a lot of interview coaching and he's kept that for a, a really long time um and he's really happy yeah i think a lot of people i mean it's not even i think it's it's across a lot of cultures that we find meaning and purpose in work and that we want to do a thing it doesn't always, it always doesn't matter what the job is that oh that actually that's what i've realized is that it's it's sad because sometimes i would get um, people come in who had PhDs and were professors in their own country in a particular topic and the challenge was could we ever get them back to anything like that ever again um, and that's where you see your you know your asylum seekers who have double master's degrees who are driving Uber but like a lot of people prefer to drive Uber than to to sit around like 
like I think people aren't that precious about what jobs they get mostly. I think they just want a job that gives them a sense of purpose and structures their day and gives them some income and lets them sort of support their family. Yeah, I think it's less about what exactly the job is and more just that someone has a job and gets gets some kind of purpose or meaning from that. Yeah. And what about your own mental health? And you touched on sort of the importance of resilience in in your role. What, what sort of things have you found been, have been helpful to, to assist you in, to that end uh, during your time in community services? I think realising the limits of what your, what your particular job can be. Um, and that's it's challenging in community services because there's so much need that basically if you wanted to keep working on different things, you could find them. And, you know, I've always been someone who's had more than one job. And, you know, even in my last job, I accidentally became, you know, in addition to my full-time role, I accidentally picked up another role there as well. And both of the roles were, were pretty full-on, but really rewarding. So I think it's balancing the what value you get from doing work that matters to you or that's meaningful or, you know, that's enjoyable versus adequate time off, adequate sleep, adequate rest, you know, rest. But I think it's just a, a really, like I don't have a, um, an easy answer in community services because I think the risks around burnout are always so high. And then also the challenges that organizations have around funding and resourcing mean that it's really, you don't want to take time off because you don't want the pressure to be on your colleagues, for instance, because there's never any budget for bringing on a temp while you're away, as an example. So I I think it's an ongoing challenge for people who work in in these sorts of organizations or in these sorts of roles. Um, And that I think it's one that actually at the end of the day is around funding. And and with your own point, I mean, did you just get to a point where you felt, I have to take some time off now? Or did you sort of pre-plan it ahead and think, no, nah, this year, this is this is when I'm going to take time off and just make sure that I adhere to that? I did both. Um, I took a holiday and then I also took some time off. But what, and this has happened in two sectors that I've been in actually, homelessness and um forced migration so for people seeking asylum that there's been a big federal government change in funding so there's been big federal government budget cuts and then the flow through has impacted the services and the the people accessing the services but then it also just flows onto the workers and so it just your your work just becomes more stressful so for instance in my last in my last role in um with people seeking asylum the federal they People seeking asylum used to be able to get 89% of new start, so like a little bit of money from from the federal government while they were getting settled in Sydney, usually for a couple of months, and it would just mean that they could hopefully find a room to rent and and hopefully get started before they were looking for a job. And then, so one for in my first year, I was working with that that environment and that situation. Then in my second year in that job the income support was almost completely removed. And so you had people, like we had people um, rocking up from the airport. So people who'd gotten off a flight, had their bags and then came straight from Sydney airport to our service needing needing a job to pay for, um, to pay for a rental. And just not having that small support meant that my job just was transformed almost overnight into, into, basically homelessness prevention um, for asylum seekers. 
and we all, all the workers felt the stress of that over time. And a sort of a loss of, it's something that I don't quite know how to describe, but you sort of lose sight of what is actually acceptable because, because the further you move away from having had that income support, the more that you will be in a situation where you have to prioritize a client for a job and one client will have a car and the other client won't. And then the client who, who doesn't have a car will be be more urgent because the client who has a car can live in the car. And and like it, it's it's so ridiculous that you're in a situation where you're saying, okay, we know that both of these people are essentially homeless, but one has a car, one doesn't. We've got, you know, but but that's how though the loss that's how loss of federal income support and federal money from community services programs. That's sort of the awful place that the workers end up being in, where they're where they're just dealing in so much need and so few resources and, and yeah, you end up thinking that a guy who's sleeping in his car isn't doing that bad after all. Right, and how much satisfaction do you get when you sort of see people out of those situations and, and you get to them to a point oh, where they huge. do huge. Yeah. Yeah, enormous satisfaction. And especially if you can, especially if you see people after a time. So, and we would have people who duck back in I, this was the worst that people would call me up and I'd be like, Oh my God, are you okay? Have you lost your job? And they're like, no, I'm just calling to say hi. And thank you. I'm like, Oh <laughs> yeah, no huge satisfaction. And I mean, I wake the joke that the, the work is hard, but the pay is bad or the hang on, the pay is bad, but the work's hard. Um, yeah. And, but, but like the pay truly for a lot of people, I think is in the moments where like, where someone wins whatever whatever that looks like it, it doesn't have to be like big wins we will take the littlest wins imaginable like I'll, i can think of an example and going back to your example of learning english we had um a client who whose english just wasn't at the level where she could, was safe to work and we just couldn't we couldn't have ethically put her in a work environment and she over the course of about two years learned english with in our center and she wasn't even she she was from guinea and she so guinea has a french-speaking culture she wasn't she was literate in nothing she wasn't even literate in in french and so she became literate and could speak english after the course of about two years and she just went to classes every every week and quietly learn English and I I would see her sort of writing in a notebook and she would show me and she was learning numbers and the day that she was ready for you know that her English level was ready to look for employment you better bet you better believe that that was <laughs> that was a win <laughs> and, and where are you at now so you're you you've have you sort of moved there that sector because of the COVID-19 situation so um the COVID-19 situation is has completely transformed how how that work is being done um, and I took the opportunity to move back into work that I love which is resume writing and to have a think about what comes next because um, I've spent about 10 years in community services or profits now and um, I'm not sure what the future holds for me so I needed to go away and do some thinking. And do you think there is a because of the sort of pressures that you spoke about earlier, do you think it is a there is a fine time you're going to spend in that industry for most people? I think so. And like a real challenge is that the people who are 
the people who are amazing practitioners, and this, this, I've got no evidence for this, by the way, except just anecdotal and what I've observed. The people who are truly excellent at the work tend to burn out because they tend to really just be very committed and flexible and creative and sort of do what needs to be done. So I've, I've, I've observed a lot of burnout. Um, and something that I find fascinating is that there's not a lot of clinical evidence around burnout. Like there's, you know, there's no, if you go to the doctor and you say, I'm burning out in my job, how long should I have off? There's no clinically recommended guideline for how long you should take off work to, to recover from burnout. Everyone just sort of eyeballs and then when we all know that it's such a risk, but, but we don't have a collective response of, you know, if I had pneumonia and I went to the doctor and I said, I've got, <laughs> you know, I've got pneumonia, what's my, what's my timeline for, for not going back to work? I would get an answer. But um, I, think, I think burnout is more, is seen as more shameful. And um, I've actually heard a senior, actually like a, a leader in a nonprofit say that, burnout was like a tube of toothpaste and once that it once it had been squeezed out it couldn't go back in which I thought was remarkable given just well for a few reasons remarkable given just the level of burnout that exists in organizations and the people are still going to work and doing a decent job so people like people work with burnout like they go they keep going and then the other thing is, God, if if we don't believe in community services that recovery is possible, then what <laughs> then what what hope do, do we have for our clients who are who are you know doing their best to recover from uh, mental health in different contexts? Like, oh goodness. <laughs> but I guess that's a long way of saying that I totally think burnout is recoverable. I just think that maybe, I mean, my my strategy is to go between community services and other environments that's always been my strategy and i guess um, it's also about self-awareness isn't it to, to sort of see, to know where you're at in that if you, if you think about it as a, as a burnout gauge or whatever where you're sort of at on on that spectrum yeah absolutely so i hope like me you got a lot out of that conversation it was really enlightening to understand some of the challenges of the community services sector and i've worked personally over the years with asylum seekers myself so I understand a lot of the issues that Alex touched on there but I found it quite helpful to learn more about the issues around burnout and how that can maybe be avoided when taking on really challenging roles or challenging projects within your professional life. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to that conversation today and I look forward to joining you again soon.